Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right. Well, let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And what we're going to dive into tonight is what many commentators have called, and I quote, a swampy mess. This is one of the most difficult passages of Scripture in Daniel, and it's the one that has the most debatable issues where people land on two different sides of the fence on how you interpret it. So um, let's just read it. And let's remember, I know we didn't meet last week because we had the, um, the creation thing, but the beginning of chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer. Um, if you remember, Daniel read the book of Jeremiah, and he remembered in reading the book of Jeremiah that they were going to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Daniel looks at his proverbial sundial or whatever and says, hey, we're getting close to the end of this 70 years. God, are you going to act? Are you going to bring us back to Jerusalem? And so he's praying for God to act and bring them back to Jerusalem, uh, the city that's lying in ruins. And the main point about last, last time we met was actually in verse, let's go back. It was in verse 18. And, and really this is the basis for all praying. If you don't remember anything from that, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see your desol- our desolations in the city that's called by your name. And here's the point. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. God, we're not, we don't deserve for you to answer our prayer, God. We, we're not worthy of you being our God. All we can plead is your mercy. Would you please act in mercy because you're a merciful God. So that's David's prayer. It's not David, Daniel's prayer. So remember, Gabriel has been the angel who's been giving him interpretations of what's happening. So let's just read verses 20 through 27, and then we'll go back and we'll try to understand what this means. So starting in verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you for your great... Excuse me, you're greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay, so he's going to explain a vision here. Seventy weeks, or seventy-sevens, depending on your translation, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, therefore, I understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for a half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, 
until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, you guys know what this means. It's all very clear. Time to go home, and I understand. So, in the middle of this prayer, the angel Gabriel comes with a word of comfort. He says, Daniel, you're greatly loved. Let me explain this to you. Now, here's where some of you may disagree with me tonight if you have a certain interpretation of this passage. But let me just tell you, historically, there have been two ways to interpret this passage of Scripture. So before I give you the two ways, I want to say we can't be dogmatic on this. Because historically, evangelical, Bible-believing Christians have interpreted it in two different ways. Now, before I even go any further, at first reading, does this make a lot of sense to you? Okay, so we're coming to a difficult passage that has a lot of numbers and a lot of things going on. And so it's not clear-cut theological doctrine like grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, substitutionary atonement, resurrection, virgin birth. It's not very clear like the things that we can be very clear on. So it's a, it's a difficult passage. So there can be, I say this very carefully, there can be good reasons for two opposing viewpoints as long as there are reasons why you hold to what you hold to. So let me give you the two different ways this passage has been interpreted. Number one has been what's been called the traditional messianic interpretation. This goes all the way back to the beginning of church history around the 300s AD. This has been the predominant view throughout church history. And basically, this prophecy is about the first coming of Jesus. This is all about Jesus coming, dying on the cross, and then the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Roman army. So that's, that's interpretation of one, the historical messianic interpretation that this is talking about what Jesus did when he came and died on the cross, and then what happened in A.D. 70. That's the predominant, that's been the most, the, the longest view throughout church history, and, and probably the most traditional. The second view is fairly new. It's called the dispensational interpretation you may not know what dispensational means, but some people have grown up in a more dispensational background. And so some of you may take this view because it's, it's kind of the more the newer view. It's kind of what I would call the left behind view. Um, it's kind of what a lot of televangelists hold to, but it's not been the predominant one throughout church history. So this view says um, the prophecy is a great parenthesis between the 69th and 70th week. When the 70th week begins... Sometime in the future, the Antichrist will appear. He will make a covenant with the Jewish nation, and he will promise them seven years of peace. The physical temple will have been rebuilt during this time. The sacrificial system will have been reinstated, reinstituted. In the middle of this, at three and a half years, he will break this covenant and end temple worship, ushering in the Great Tribulation. So this sees it as a not talking about Jesus on the cross, but talking more about the Antichrist making a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and stopping the sacrificial system of worship sometime in the future and ushering in the Great Tribulation. Now, which view does Pastor Sean hold to? View number one. I hold to the first view. You can hold to the second view. I'm not going to be dogmatic on this. Um, I'm not dispensational in my theology. Um, I am a Reformed Covenant theologian, and so I'm going to teach this passage from the historical Messianic interpretation. 
Um, so if you never heard the historical interpretation, you can learn it tonight. Um, if, we, if you want to talk about the dispensational view, we may talk about that tonight, but I want you just to be open. So let me just, let me just before we go any further, how many of you have a view on this passage? Or do you, is anybody coming to this knowing what it means? Sort of. Yeah, okay. So, like one, okay. You're, you're the lone ranger that everybody else is kind of coming here saying, I'm an open book. Okay, so let's just look at some questions here because it is kind of confusing. And I want to make this as plain as possible. So let's ask some fundamental questions. Okay, what's the deal with the number of weeks? Okay, it, it starts off with these weeks. Verse 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. And then it talks about 62 weeks. And then it talks about the 62 weeks. And then it talks about the, the 69th week and all these weeks. What, what are the weeks? So 70 weeks, 7 weeks, 62 weeks, 1 week, 70 weeks. Okay, this is where all the scholars agree, okay? So almost all the scholars and theologians agree that this means 70 times 7 years, which equals what? 490 years, okay? So let's write this up on the board. 490 years. Okay, so let's do some math. From the time that something happens to 490 years, something else is going to happen. Okay? So, let's, let's find out here in verse 24. 70 weeks, or what? 490 what? Years are decreed about your people and your holy city. Okay. What's the holy city? Jerusalem. Okay. So, what date, if we're talking about dates and years, again, I don't want to get bogged down here, but we got we to deal with this. What decree or word goes out concerning the holy city of Jerusalem? Okay. Well, do you remember a decree went out from Cyrus the king to allow Israel to do what? Go back to Jerusalem and do what? Rebuild. Rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. So, the first issue is that the decree to rebuild Jerusalem would be completed in seven weeks, okay? Or seven times seven years, which would be 49 years. Okay, so the big theological question or historical question is, okay, what date starts this decree and who decrees it? We know under Ezra and Nehemiah, the wall and the temple were rebuilt after the Israelites returned from Babylonian captivity, We'll attempt to answer this in a minute, but you not only have 49 years of the 70 weeks with the rebuilding of the temple, but it also speaks of 69 weeks or 483 years from the decree. Okay. Are you confused yet? Anybody confused? Okay. Now, let me give you my best guess based upon historical dating. In 458 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave the decree to Ezra to rebuild Jerusalem. If you add 483 years to this date, guys, do your math. What year does it come to? A.D. 26. 
Does anybody know what happened in AD 26? It's the year that most scholars believe Jesus began his public ministry at his baptism. Okay, so Jesus was not born in zero, <laughs> zero AD. So 26 AD is about the time. So when did Jesus actually die? 26 minus plus, you know, add three years to that. Around 29 to 30 AD. Okay. Can't be very dogmatic on this, but I find it very interesting that when you add 483 years to the decree to rebuild the temple, you get AD 26. Now, something happens after the 69th week. Something happens, like when, this, when it hits this point. Okay, so up to this point, up to this point, it's the 69th week. And then something happens at this point that ushers in the 70th week. So the question is, okay, what happens in the 70th week? What wonderful, historic, beautiful, epic event happened that's the center of all history? What happened at AD 26? Not Christmas, but the public ministry of Jesus, and then obviously his what? Resurrection. His death, burial, resurrection. Okay. In verse 25, what do we see? Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks I shall build it again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. There shall come an anointed one. Okay, what, what, is the anoint, what does the word anointed one mean? Messiah or Christ. Okay, Jesus here it's called, Jesus is called the Messiah, the Prince. So the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus began his public ministry as the Messiah, as the anointed one, he was baptized or anointed, thus signaling the beginning of the 70th week. When Jesus was baptized, that was called his anointing or his coming forward to be publicly in ministry. That ushered in. So when you do all the math, most scholars would say, based upon that decree to rebuild the temple, you add it, AD 26, that was the year that Jesus was anointed. He was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. He started his public ministry. And then we know what he did ultimately on the cross. So what we're going to do here is that Daniel gives us six descriptions of what Jesus did on the cross. Now, I'm taking the historical messianic interpretation, so I'm seeing these descriptions of things that Jesus did when he died on the cross, and I'm going to try to show you that, okay? So let's just look. What's the first thing he did? Read it in your Bible. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city. Here's number one, to finish the transgression. Okay. To put it into sin and atone for iniquity. Okay, I'm gonna, can I erase this? I'm going to show you, it's very interesting. In the Old Testament, there are three words for sin in the Old Testament language. I won't write the Hebrew word, I'll write the English word. There's transgression. There's sin. And there is iniquity. 
Do you see those three words in that passage of Scripture? Read it with your own eyes. Verse 24. To finish the transgression, do you see that word? Mm -hmm. To put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. So all three words, the three specific words in the Hebrew language for sin are used here. And they all have a shade of meaning. Transgression really means to rebel or to trespass. It means God has set a marker. God has set a standard and you flagrantly disobey that standard. You're, you're, you're rebelling against God. So when Jesus died on the cross, what did he do? It says he finished the transgression. In other words, he paid for our transgressions. He, he finished it. Doesn't that, does that sound interesting? He finished the transgression. It's a strong word in the Hebrew language. It means ultimately to bring it to an end, to annihilate it. What did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? It is finished. He has finished our transgression. He's, he's brought it to a completion. And a lot of this language you're going to see in the book of Hebrews, which is very interesting because the book of Hebrews in the New Testament takes a lot of the sacrificial imagery and applies it to Jesus as the sacrificial lamb and the high priest. So in Hebrews 9, 11 through 12, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He finished the transgression. He cried out, it is finished. He finished our sin by dying on the cross. So that's the first thing Jesus did when he came. What's the second thing? He put an end to what? He put an end to sin. Now, it sounds almost exactly the same thing, right? He finished the transgression, he put an end to sin. Okay, the word sin, this is probably one you've heard before. This means to miss the mark or to deviate off the path. It's like you have an arrow and there's a target over there and you're shooting for the bullseye. Instead of hitting the bullseye, you're shooting way over here. Like you totally missed the mark. You're nowhere close to meeting God's standard. You have sinned. And what has Jesus done on the cross? He put an end to sin. Again, Hebrews 9.26. But as it is, he appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. To put away sin. Number three, what's the third thing you see there? To what? Atone for our iniquity. Okay, this is the third Hebrew word. Okay, transgression is an action. We've rebelled. Sinning is an action. Iniquity speaks more of your nature. It means depraved. It means corrupt. Literally, it means twisted. So this goes to the heart, not only of what you do as a sinner in your actions, but it goes to the core of who you are as a sinner. And what did Jesus do? He atoned. In the original language, 
This means to propitiate. That's a word that you don't hear often. To propitiate. What does propitiate mean? Well, propitiate or propitiation means that when Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed the full wrath of God and took it entirely upon himself so we wouldn't have to experience that justice. That word shows up in the New Testament. Atonement, propitiation. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So when you hear the word atone or propitiate, it's the idea of turning aside God's anger directed towards sin. Jesus took that in our place, so we wouldn't have to take it. Now, J.I. Packer probably has the best definition of this in his book. Um, this is from his book with Mark Dever, In My Place Condemned, Condemned He Stood. He's got another definition in, in knowing God, but this is, this is a good one. God's wrath is not the capricious, arbitrary, bad-tempered, and conceited anger that pagans attribute to their gods. It's not the sinful, resentful, malicious, infantile anger that we find among humans. It is a function of that holiness which is expressed in the demands of God's moral law. It is a righteous anger. God has to punish sin because he's a holy God. And instead of punishing us, he punishes Jesus. I've said this in different ways at different times before. There are two ways you will experience the wrath of God. One is forever and ever in hell. Or two, Jesus taking it in your place so you'll never have to experience it. But either way, God's wrath is going to be poured out, either on you in hell or on Jesus in your place. I say choose option number one, Jesus in your place. <laughs> Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Okay, so the first three things here are what Jesus did to take away our sin. Kind of negative. So he, he put it, he, it is finished. He finished transgression. He put it into our sin. He atoned for our iniquity. Okay, the next three are related to what he's done positively for us. So what do we see next there? To bring in what? Everlasting righteousness. Everlasting righteousness. Now, what does this mean? This is justification by faith alone. This is the righteousness that gets credited to us when we trust Jesus for salvation. So it's that whole idea that when you trust Jesus for salvation, your sin goes to Jesus. He takes your sin. His righteousness then comes to you, and then God can declare you legally not guilty God can say, you are righteous. Not because you earned it or you produced it, but because Christ gave it to you. You see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness, of, that we might become the righteousness of God. All right, the next one's a little bit more difficult, okay? Number five, to seal both vision and profit. Now, what does this mean, to seal both vision and profit. How does this relate to Jesus? Well, Jesus is the ultimate and final word of God. He's the ultimate prophet. So let me say it this way. 
the messianic age has come in the sense that Jesus has come in the flesh. Since Jesus has come, does God need to send any more prophets? No. Why? Because Jesus is the final, not only is he the living word of God, but he's the final, he's the final, God's final word. He's, he's the word made flesh. And so again, Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter one. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he's created the world. In the last days, in these days, we don't need prophets anymore. Because Jesus has come. The, the vision, the prophecy has been sealed up because Christ has come. We don't need any more prophets. Christ is the final prophet, the final word of God. First Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. All right. Now, this is the next one where translations help when you look at the original language. What's the sixth thing here? To anoint a most holy, the ESV says a most holy place. That may be confusing. Does anybody have an NIV or a King James Version? Or does anybody have a footnote in their ESV? I have a footnote in my ESV that says, thing or one. Does anybody have that as opposed to place? Yes. Okay. The NIV and the KJV have a more literal translation. Technically, it, all it says is to anoint the most holy. The word place is not in the original language. It's an implied word. That makes a big difference. Is it a place or a person? Or is it the most holy? And you fill in the blank of which one it is. So does this refer to a temple? A place? Or does it refer to a person? So let's ask the question. This is a trick question. Who, not what, who is the end times temple? Jesus. I take this because of the dating. I take this to anoint the most holy, to mean Jesus' baptism. He came as the Messiah. He was anointed. He's the, he's the most holy one. Not to anoint a temple, per se. J John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then He's called the Holy One. A lot of times, like in Luke, when Jesus encounters demons, they refer to Him as the most holy one. What have you have to, why have you come to torment us before the time, most holy one? And then he was referred to in Acts chapter 10. You yourselves know what happened through all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. He anointed the most holy at his baptism. Now, here's where we don't find anywhere else in the Bible do we find reference to anointing of a literal temple in the future. But we do have a metaphor for the baptism of Jesus who is the consummate temple of God. Now, 
From this one verse, we've seen six prophetic descriptions of what Christ will come 483 years after the decree in AD 26 when he comes anointed at his baptism. He comes as the Messiah. He is the anointed one. When he dies on the cross, he's going to put an end to sin. He's going to cry out, it is finished. He's going to bring in righteousness. He's going to accomplish all of this as the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of kings. Okay. But there are two more descriptions in verses 26 and 27. Let's handle the first one. So let's just skip down to verse 26. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. The anointed one shall be cut off. What does it mean that the anointed one shall be cut off? What does it mean he'll be cut off? Isaiah 53 gives us a hint. Isaiah 53, 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. This is a prophecy about Jesus. And for his generation who considered him, he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. When it speaks of being cut off, it's talking about Jesus dying on the cross, but the word cut off is very important in this text. The word to make a covenant in the Old Testament was to cut or to cut off a covenant. It described the ritual of cutting an animal in half as a covenant between the two parties. Remember when Abraham, I think Brent talks about this a lot, that he calls it the death path. Remember when Abraham was in a deep sleep and God told him before he went in deep sleep, cut the animals in half and God himself walked through with the pot, basically showing that a covenant had been cut in blood and God was binding himself to Abraham. And so in the Old Testament, when you cut a covenant, you literally cut an animal and had blood to show that you were entering into a binding agreement with somebody to cut a covenant. So this is covenant language. So in essence, it's saying that when Jesus is cut off, he's going to make a covenant. What does the New Testament call it? A new covenant in his blood. Talk about it when we do the Lord's Supper. Now, I have a note that says death, but not for him. It says to cut or death, but not for himself. Yeah, I, I don't know what that, that means. <laughs> okay, yeah. just... Now, verse 27. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for a half a week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Okay, this is where the, 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 the two interpretations are very strongly in disagreement. So verse 27 speaks of someone coming to make a strong covenant with many and putting an end to the sacrifice and the offering. So who, who's the identity of this person who makes a strong covenant and puts an end to sacrifice? Okay, let me give you the dispensational view Again, I don't necessarily hold this view, but let me, in fairness, let me show you what they say. The dispensational view says this is the Antichrist who comes in the first year of a literal seven-year tribulation. He makes a peace treaty, i.e. a covenant, with Israel. And then he breaks that covenant that he made three and a half years into it. And when he cuts that covenant or breaks that covenant, 
it puts an end to the sacrificial system. And so what it assumes, what the dispensational view assumes is that there will literally be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and the sacrificial system will be reinstituted during that time. They believe in a secret rapture where God takes the church out of the picture. And so the church is no longer around. It's now the Jewish people that are left. And there's a rebuilt temple. And so basically it goes back to Old Testament times. And then the Antichrist makes a covenant with the Jewish people. You can go ahead and have animal sacrifices, all that kind of stuff. Halfway through it, he says, no, you can't do that anymore. And then that's when uh, an intense time of persecution happens on the Jews. That's the... Um, that's the dispensational view. Now, again, remember, I don't necessarily hold to that view, but I'm not going to be dogmatic because many godly people do hold to that view. I hold to the traditional messianic view that's been around a little bit longer in church history. And so what this view says is that the one who makes the covenant and stops the sacrifices is Jesus because it's been consistent all the way through. Who's the one that puts an end to sin? Who's the one that ends the transgression, who's the anointed one, who's the holy one. This is all consistently all going through. It's, it's Jesus. And so um, I want to show you why the language here lends itself to understanding it to possibly being Jesus. Again, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. So the usual word for making a covenant or cutting a covenant is not used here in verse 27. Daniel uses a different Hebrew word. Okay? The word is not to cut a covenant like for the first time. It means to make stronger or reconfirm an existing covenant. So this view would say, making this strong covenant is not a new covenant with the Jews by the Antichrist, but a strengthening of God's original covenant with his people through the cutting off of his only son, Jesus. So it is a, it's covenant language, but it's related to the new covenant. And so in the New Testament, you have new covenant terminology. It's related to the old covenant, but it's, it's the new covenant. We often talk about this at the Lord's Supper, communion. So Matthew 26, 27 to 28, Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Hebrews 9.15, Therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So let's ask the question, how does the death of Christ on the cross in the new covenant put an end to the sacrifices, and the offerings. Okay, so let's think of it this way. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, said, I'm instituting the new covenant in my blood. When I die on the cross, that's going to be the new covenant in blood. What things happened 
when Jesus died on the cross, physically, that you can remember, that signified an end to the sacrificial system that Israel knew as the way to worship God. What are some things you guys remember? Yeah, what happened? The temple veil tore in two from what? From top to bottom. Okay? Now, what's the whole book of Hebrews about? Don't go back to the sacrificial system because that stuff doesn't matter anymore. Now, here's the big question. Did the Jewish people stop doing the sacrifices in the temple the day that Jesus died on the cross and rose again? No, they didn't. They continued to do it. So let me ask you a question. From that moment forward, when a Jewish person went to the temple and sacrificed a lamb on Passover, could you say that was false pagan worship? I mean, think about it. If Jesus has come and died on the cross and it is finished, and yet they're carrying on the sacrificial system, what, why are they doing that? What's the point? There is no point because Christ has come and he's fulfilled that. Now, here's where the dispensationalists will object and say, this is not talking about Jesus because I object, Pastor Sean. Um, they say that Jesus' death didn't bring an end to Jewish sacrifices. Well, let's ask the question. It didn't happen immediately that next day. But after his death, we have two issues to consider. Okay? There's two things that happen. One, there's an entire book of Hebrews that clearly teaches that Jesus' death abolished the sacrificial system of the Old Testament once and for all. So whether it happened immediately Theologically, it was supposed to happen because Jesus died once and for all. And number two, Israel continued this quote-unquote false worship in the temple until A.D. 70. So when did Jesus die? A.D. 30. You have 40 years. What's 40 years in Jewish thought? A generation. You have a generation after Jesus' death of Jewish people who were blinded, who were hardened. Who are these people? I mean, Paul was one of them for a while. They were persecuting the Christians. Okay, so Jesus talks about what's going to happen to Jerusalem in particular because of what they've done to blindly not realize that their Messiah had come, especially in Luke's gospel. So in Luke chapter 19... 41 through 44. Jesus says when, he, it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over, that's Jerusalem, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What's Jesus predicting right there? In 40 years, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed because you have blind eyes. And the enemies are going to come and they're not going to leave one stone unturned because you didn't know the time of your visitation. I am here. I'm the Messiah. 
I've come. I've finished the work on the cross. There's no more need to do any of the sacrificial stuff. Okay, further down in Luke 21, 20 through 24. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it's the desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. As for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus is warning that very generation right there of what's going to happen in A.D. 70 when Emperor, Emperor Vespasian, Vespasian sends his general Titus to march into Jerusalem. In verse 20, what does Jesus call it? He calls it a desolation, a day of desolation. In verse 22, he calls it a day of vengeance. Okay, here's a question. And I don't know if we have the answer, but here's my guess. Why did God wait until A.D. 70 to bring his vengeance upon the people of Israel? Why didn't he do it right after Jesus returned to heaven? Or why not a few years later? Why almost 37 years later? It takes time get a message out. Yep. God is patient with Israel. God gave the Jewish people an opportunity to repent and believe in Jesus their Messiah through whose preaching primarily? Peter and Paul. Two Jewish men. Now Paul was primarily a minister to the Gentiles, Peter more to the Jews. But Paul did go to the Jews as well. What was the spiritual condition of the Jewish people during this time? They were blinded. They were callous. They were hardened. And as a result, who's coming to faith more, Gentiles or Jews during this time? Gentiles. Gentiles. Okay. So God gave them time to repent. But in AD 70, what did God say? Time is up. The judgment's coming upon your city. And this is what Paul addresses because Paul is writing before this has happened. Okay, the book of Romans is written before AD 70. And Paul is writing to the Jewish people. In chapter two of Romans, Paul's audience is the Jewish people. And listen to what Paul says to them. Do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, that's future wrath. So here's the thing. The destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD is a prototype of final judgment. It's kind of miniature. It was localized to the Jewish people and God destroyed their city because they didn't repent. It's a picture of what God's going to do on the final day, Jew and Gentile, whoever doesn't believe in Jesus, and it's worldwide. He tells them to run to the hills. It's interesting, three years before Titus ransacked the city, 
Another general, Gallius, attempted to conquer Jerusalem but was unsuccessful. And the Christians remembered the words of Jesus. And so they fled across the Jordan River and found refuge in a city called Pella. And nearly all the Christians who lived in Jerusalem were able to escape the city when it was destroyed. Okay. So due to their disobedience, what happened to the temple? What happened to... Oh, sorry. Joel 1.15. Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, and the destruction from the Almighty, it comes. The day of the Lord. Okay. So what was the punishment for the Jewish people and what happened to the temple in literal history. In AD 70, Titus, the Roman general, marched his troops into Jerusalem, laid siege to the city, and burned the temple. To this day, there is no temple. Okay. So when Jesus died on the cross, he instituted the new covenant in his blood, and he brought an end to the sacrificial system. There's no need for it anymore. But because the Jewish people were continuing to do it after Christ had come, it had really become a desolation. It didn't really matter. It was kind of false worship. And notice what happens here in verse 27. He shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week, and for half a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. On the wing of abom... Does anybody have another word besides wing of abominations? Does anybody have a different translation? Besides wing? The Hebrew word wing... There's a lot of debate about this, but most scholars believe it means the pinnacle of the temple. On the pinnacle of the temple... There's going to be desolation. The temple worship was useless after Christ died and rose again. So what this view says is that what was going on in the temple after Jesus died was false worship and abomination to the Lord. The Jews continued in their unbelief and blindness offering bulls and goats on the altar and doing all these sacrifices, which was really an abomination to an offense to God because Christ had finished the work. Now, this abomination of desolation that Daniel speaks of, who's going to do it? Who's going to come destroy it? Well, in verse 26, it says, Desolations are decreed. And it says, on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. Now, is that Jesus? Or is it somebody else that's going to come and destroy the temple? The historical view takes it to be Titus, the general from the Roman army, is coming and he's going to destroy the temple as an act of judgment that God brings upon the Jewish people. Okay. Now, Let's stop and take a breath. Are there any questions up to this point? With this, I'd say this is a swampy mess. I don't want us to lose the forest for the trees. Do, do the Jewish people still do the sacrificial system? Nope, because there's no temple. Oh, so because it's gone, 
Yeah, you, so it did eventually end. Yeah, in AD 70, there's not been temple, there's not been any sacrifices because there's been no temple since AD 70. And Jewish people will celebrate like Passover and they'll celebrate Shabbat or Sabbath and the different Jewish festivals and they'll go to synagogue, which is like a local church. But as far as any type of sacrificial bulls and goats, there, there's, there's been none of that since A.D. 70. So it sounds like it rings true then. Like, Well, yeah, I mean, for, for, for over 2,000 years now, they haven't been able to do that. And, and, and I guess the point is, if Jesus cried out, it is finished, why would you need to go back to that? That's kind of what the whole book of Hebrews is. While Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed and those Jewish people, those Christians who were Jewish were tempted to go back to that sacrificial system because it was comfortable to them. They weren't accepting Christ as being better than all of that stuff. Yeah, even, it, it just, it, it's kind of interesting to think though that the Jewish people who still don't believe necessarily in Jesus aren't doing exactly what, Yeah. so I mean it, it came it came true, and they're kind of ignoring the fact that... Well, and even, so Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, especially Romans 11, says to this day there's a, there's a blinding or a partial hardening over the Jewish people that God has purposely put on them to where, en masse, there's not a lot of salvation of Jewish people. But sometime during the end, we don't know exactly when that will be, the Bible does speak about a large remnant by grace. A large number of ethnic Jewish people will come to faith in their Messiah in Christ. Um, but right now, we would say it's the time of the Gentiles where worldwide more Gentiles are coming to faith than, than the Jewish people. Until that hardening is lifted or until God ordains that time when there's going to be that great outpouring of salvation by the Jewish people. Brent? In 70 AD, right after... There were two famous uh, rabbis, one Hillel and I can't remember the other one. And the two of them, they um, made the argument, they said that because God has taken away the sacrificial system here that we can do, mm -hmm. our sacrifice needs to be to live for God. So they thought two different ways of living for God, mm -hmm. and that would take over for the sacrificial yeah. system because God had, yeah. and his sovereignty taken away. Yeah. We become the sacrifice, like the living it out. Yeah. Okay, so 77, 62 weeks, 69 weeks, 7 times 7. Okay, I'm not a math guy, but what else in the Bible do we find an explanation about what happens in the final week in a series of sevens? This is where it gets kind of exciting. In Leviticus chapters 25 and 26, we discover the celebration of the year of Jubilee. You guys know what the year of Jubilee is? Okay, so for 49 years, things kept going on and on. And in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, here's what would happen in the year of Jubilee. Jewish slaves were released, debts were canceled, the land was to lie fallow for a year. In other, in other words, it was a year of God's favor where God did an incredible act of forgiveness and made all things new. So the year of Jubilee was something that the Jewish people looked forward to. 
waiting 49 years and and that last the, the last of 49 years in year 50 debts so how would you so think about it this way I don't know what the average debt is for an American household credit card debt but I've heard something that's like $20,000 or something okay let's say you have $20,000 credit card debt all right so December 31st you have $20,000 credit card debt January 1st of the 50th year you're done you don't have any debt. So you lived for what? The year of Jubilee. When all debts were canceled, everything was made new, everything started over. Okay, so there's this year of Jubilee. Okay? Slaves going free, debts being canceled. Okay, now, when Jesus comes right after his baptism, when he's anointed as the most holy, he preaches in his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue of Nazareth. He sits down. And by the way, um, synagogue worship is very similar to what we do today. You know what they did in synagogue worship? They would pray. They would sing psalms. They would give an offering. There would be an Old Testament reading from the, the first five books of the Bible. And then there would be an expository sermon by the rabbi where he would take the scroll and he would sit down and he'd read a scripture and then he would do a 45-minute sermon and then they would pray and leave. Sounds a lot like what we do. Okay. So Jesus just happened to be in his hometown and he walks in and I guess it's his turn to preach. So the rabbi hands him the scroll and he sits down and he reads the scroll. Okay. What does he read? He reads the scroll from Isaiah. So let's pick up in Luke. So Luke records for us what Jesus reads. And God sovereignly orchestrated it to where that particular scroll was read on that particular day because it was scheduled. They had the scheduled readings. And notice what Jesus reads. He's reading from Isaiah. Okay, but it's recorded in Luke 4, 18-19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Spirit of the Lord's upon me. Jesus is basically saying, I'm the anointed one. I'm the Messiah. And I'm here to proclaim freedom. Freedom from sin. Good news to those that are spiritually bankrupt that you can have forgiveness. And the very last thing he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, literally to proclaim the year of Jubilee. So the 70th week, or the 50th year, whenever you look at it, over here, I, in Daniel it's the 70th week. In Jubilee years, it's the year of Jubilee. However you look at it, when Jesus came on the Messiah as the Messiah, he proclaimed the good news. But not only did he proclaim the good news, what literally happened to him on the cross? He was literally, what? Cut off in his death. He ended sin. He atoned for iniquity. He released prisoners. He released those who were enslaved by sin on the cross. So let me just say this tonight. Don't get caught up in the math. And don't think about the 70s and the 69s. Think about what Jesus has done for you. 
regardless of how you view the passage. If you view the passage through the dispensational lens or you view the passage through the historical lens, let everything go back to just the question. Okay, let me just ask you some questions tonight. Do you need your transgressions to be finished? Yeah. Do you need your sin to be put to an end? Do you need God's wrath to be finally taken away from you and be thoroughly dealt with by Jesus? Do you need to be accepted by God and counted righteous? Are you spiritually bankrupt in need of a Savior? Are you in bondage to sin and need release? And are your eyes blinded to the glory and beauty of Jesus and you need to have him as your Lord of all? If that's true of you, then hear the words of Jesus. Today is the year of jubilee. It's the year of Lord's... You know what the word jubilee means? Welcome home. God is saying to sinners, I'm receiving you to myself and forgiving all of your sins. Now, let's ask a question. In Christianity, is there anything you have to do to get this? No. Let me show you the difference here, okay? Every religion and world system and spirituality besides Christianity says, what must I what? Do. do. I have to pray enough, go to church enough, say enough Hail Marys, get baptized enough, be spiritual enough. What do I have to do? I have to do something. So here's a question. How much do you have to do? And how much is enough? In any world system, how much do you have to do and how much is enough? Because I guarantee you, if you ask a person, how much do I have to do and how much is enough, what's the answer going to be? Well, nobody's perfect. In God's economy, that is. You, if you want to be saved by your works, God says, okay, if that's the way you want to set it up, what do I have to do? You have to be perpetually perfect 100% of the time, all the time, in thought, word, and deed. You can do that. You're good to go. Anybody do that? No. How much is enough and how much do I have to do? So all other relationships say do. What does Christianity say? I'll finish the sentence. Christianity says what? Done. Jesus has done it for us. He has finished the work. He's put it into sin. He's put it into transgression. He's atoned for our iniquity. He was cut off. He cut a new covenant in his blood. He brought an everlasting righteousness. He, he destroyed the whole need to bring bulls and goats into the sacrificial system. He brought everything in with his eternal life. And so it's a time of celebration. It's a time of joy to think about what Jesus has done. So, remember, this is an answer to Daniel's prayer. Okay, think about that. God, answer my prayer. God, I'm desperate. God, I want to go back to Jerusalem. God, please act. And how does God answer his prayer? Daniel, you don't know it yet. But in 438 years, Jesus of Nazareth is going to come on the scene and he's going to die on the cross and put an end to all of this mess. And it's going to be better than going back to Jerusalem. You're going to get to go to heaven and have all of your sins forgiven once and for all by Jesus. So when the final trumpet blows... Signaling the ultimate. How do they signify the year of Jubilee? What they do? They blew a trumpet. 
How's the end going to happen? Angel's going to blow. We don't know which angel, but an angel's going to blow a trumpet. I kind of think it's going to be Gabriel. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> or Michael. The Arch Some angelic being's going to blow a trumpet. There's going to be the cry of the archangel. We'll be taken to heaven one day. And guess what we're going to do in heaven? We will drink the cup of the new covenant with Jesus himself at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will experience life in heaven with Christ where finally, finally, our transgression will be finished, our sin put away, our iniquity atoned for, and we will live in everlasting joy with him forever. So I want to give to you the words of a song we sing in church. It's not on your screen, but you can just listen. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high, hallelujah, what a savior. So that's, wow, we got done early. <laughs> Do you guys have any questions tonight about this very interesting thing? Yeah, go ahead, Brent. There's two. One is, uh, there's clearly places in Scripture where there's a duality, where, um, like when David says things, he's saying things about himself that mm -hmm. you know, are tough on him, but it's also clearly pointing towards Christ. Right. I've always wondered if in Daniel... <clears throat> this is both are right. And that here it is, I know dispensationalists believe this, covenant theology believes this, but that God's doing the same thing. He's saying, this is this time, this is this time. Like, end, a, like a dual fulfillment? Yeah, I, I don't have a problem, <clears throat> I guess, with that. That could, be, that could be a good compromise to say, in the immediate, it's Jesus. In the final future, it's you know, right. the Antichrist view. It, um, and that brings me to the second question, which is, I've read it before, and I still don't understand it. Seventy weeks of years, I've tried adding them up, and they don't seem to come up in my head. I've, I've heard this. It's, it's, it means 70 weeks of years, not 70 weeks. And I've said, where is this coming from? What's, sure. se what's 70 weeks of years? Well, okay. What does that add up to? Well, I guess 490, but my question though is, what? Why is it that? Where do they ever get this? Okay, so so here's the here's the big difference between the dispensational and the in the in the Reformed Covenant view. Okay. So, the 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 traditional view says that the 69 weeks go up to the go up to the baptism of Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross, it instituted the 70th week. And the 70th week is the final culmination when Christ died on the cross. The dispensationalist view says there's 69 weeks that go up to a certain point. And, and, and what begins, there's a parenthesis between the 69th week and the 70th week. We don't know when the 70th week starts, but the 70th week starts when that Antichrist makes the covenant with Israel and makes that peace treaty. That starts the 70 weeks. Um, so the problem with that view is there's, there's kind of this weird amount of time between the 69th week and the 70th week if you take the math. At least with the traditional view, you can, you can time it out to when Jesus' death is. 
27 AD. The dispensationalist says the 69th week's kind of, we're still, like, still in the 69th week. It's just like still going, it's still going, it's still going. Or, or they're saying there's a parenthesis between the 69th week and the 70th week. The 69th week is when Jesus died on the cross, but right now we're kind of in this parenthesis waiting for the 70th week, but it's kind of an un, unspecified duration of time. So they make this big long gap between the 69th week and the 70th week. Am, am I correct on that for, as a dispensationalist? I've got a big chart of Okay, so okay, so Mr. Dis, yes, yeah, so okay. You may. I, I want to give free. I want to give fairness to the view. So, so maybe you can push back on me and say I'm not putting you on the spot. But I'm just saying maybe you can help I fill in some gaps. Fill in some gaps. The question I would have with the liberal view, yeah, is I have a friend who's taking that stance, and his stance is so far it seems like he's done with the Jews. Okay, and I kind of disagree with that. Okay, and when you say done with the Jews, what do you what does he mean by that? I never expounded on that because I didn't okay. want to create an argument. Yeah. Okay. Yes. But I, guess he's, I guess he's shifted from a dispensational, dispensational view to a more liberal view. Okay, to a historic, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we have to be very careful. Um, God, okay, so are you guys okay if we turn to Romans? We got time. I mean, I got. I, I, you can leave if you want, or we can we can do the study after the study. Um, this is a good. This is a good question about how do we understand the Jewish people? Because right now, Don and I are even talking about this at dinner. There, because of what's happened in Israel and because of all the situation, everybody's view on Israel has kind of been amped up, and there's like really strong opinions, and people are getting really dogmatic. And I'm like, whoa, like even right now, Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens are like in a battle where I think she's going to end up being fired from Daily Wire. I don't know, like, there's, there, there's, tw you know, it's like, whoa. Like, anyway, go ahead, Brent, what were you going to say? Well, well, I, I'm, I'm just trying to go back and say, um, maybe in a couple of um, sentences, you can explain why it says 70 weeks. It doesn't say 70 times 7, but somehow it's almost this jump. It says 77s. It doesn't say weeks. The literal translation is 77. 77. 77s. Oh, okay. Yeah. It doesn't, weeks is kind of an interpretive, literal Hebrew is 77s. Got it. Okay, yeah. that's all he So if you go to Romans chapter 11, I'm not going to get into this whole thing because there's, there's a lot to flesh out. But. Romans what? Romans chapter 11. Um, let me see if I can find it. Or is it Romans chapter 10? No, I need to find it. Well, 11's 1, basically says. Well, but there's, a, there's an actual scripture. Let me see if I can find it. There's a, there, I thought it was in Romans. I thought it was Romans like 11, 4. Maybe it's not. Oh, yeah, it's Romans 5. Okay. Verse five. So look at Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, okay? I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For my, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I, am, I alone am the left, and they seek my life. What does God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, what I take that to mean is not every single ethnic Jewish person will be saved. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you automatically get saved. If you believe in the doctrine of predestination, God has an elect number of Jewish people that will be saved. And he says there in verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, a remnant, what does the word remnant mean? A leftover, we don't know the number. Okay. But God has not abandoned the ethnic Jews. We don't know how many are going to get saved, but there is a remnant chosen by grace, and most scholars believe that's a large number during the end times that will be saved. So we don't just like, like your friend that say, oh, just forget about the Jews. You, you can't do that. The point is, is that let's just let's 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 agree with what we can agree. Let's see what we're, let's get a point of uh, point of commonality. Are you automatically saved because you're ethnically Jewish? No, that's what extreme Zionism says. That like like you get a free pass if you're ethnically Jew, you're automatically going to be saved. Okay. Are you saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Yes. Is Jesus the only way of salvation? Okay. So if that's true, then what do Jewish people and Gentiles? But let's say what do Jewish people have to do? They have to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. We know that right now, not very many are. Why? Because there's a hardening. There's a blinding. There's, there's, there's a stupor. Okay? For some reason, God has done this. And, and, and Paul says a lot of Gentiles are getting saved to make the Jews jealous. Okay? So there is a remnant, unspecified number, we don't know, maybe a large number of ethnically Jewish people that have been chosen and their salvation will be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, how that happens, when that happens, where that happens, those are all intramural debates. But that's why we support Christian witness to Israel. That's why Stephen Atkinson comes every year and why they do ministry, because we believe that the Jewish people need Jesus just as much as Gentile people. So you don't ever, I don't want to ever say, well, we're going to forget about this certain group of people. I don't think you should say that about anybody. Everybody needs Jesus. Um, so as long as you believe that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and the Jewish people need to believe in Jesus alone as their Messiah, and they don't automatically have a free pass, we need to get the message to the Jewish people about their Messiah. Does that, does that make sense? So, but you, Brent, you're looking at me like you say something. Well, this whole, um, since the 7th of October, yeah. um, it is, I know it's really fiery for some people, but to me, the fact is that, the fact that there is so much angst and antipathy towards the Jews... Um, almost gives credence to the fact of the geopolitical state of Israel okay. that let, is special. Well, let me, let me say something that a lot of you are going to disagree with, and that's okay. You, you can disagree with me. You can cast stones at me. You can be like, I can't believe he believes that, but I'll say it. Okay. The geopolitical nation state of Israel today, I don't believe is God's people. They are secular. They have, they flout homosexuality. They are totally secular. It's a secular state. Now, does that mean we shouldn't support them politically? Yes, we should support them politically. 
They're our ally in the Middle East. They are for freedom, they're democracy. We should do everything we can to support the nation state of Israel. But I don't want you to automatically equate the nation state of Israel equals God's chosen people. God's chosen people are God's chosen people no matter where they are if they're ethnically Israel. Now they may be concentrated in the nation state of Israel, but we just need to be very careful that we don't equate a nation state, secular nation state, automatically equals God's people. Now you can disagree with me on that, but I think we just need to make sure that we understand that Paul says not all Israel is Israel, and one is not a Jew outwardly. Just because you're ethnically Jewish or you're part of the Jewish state doesn't necessarily mean you're one of the chosen remnant selected by grace. Now that I've thrown that can of worms out there, does anybody want to ch <laughs> challenge or ask for, for clarification? Would, yeah. Although I totally agree with you that it's not the, the state of Israel with their people that is it. Somehow that's still God's land. I don't understand it because Why? I can't see there's any way that in 48, that, excuse me, yeah, 40, 48, that they could have come back together. I can't see in 68 that it would have. I let can't me, see. Let me just ask you. I'm not saying that it's not God's land, but why would it, why would it need to be? I, I know. If Jesus, I'm just asking the question. If Jesus has come and he's fulfilled all righteousness and we're the temple and it's a universal church of all tribes, tongues, and people, what does a piece of real estate have to do with anything related to God's kingdom? I'm just play, I'm, play, I'm playing the devil's yeah, advocate. Totally I'm playing the you. devil's advocate. I, 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 I don't think I'm not saying that it's not. Right. But I'm just saying why you have to ask the question. You have to step back and say, <coughs> okay, if it is God's land, and it is for God's people, why? What's the purpose? I, I, and I totally agree with you on that. No, the only thing is, anybody, to, I mean, I'm asking the question. Is anybody, I mean, what would be the purpose of it? I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying if you're going to use those, if, I just want you to, to think critically. If we're going to make assertions about things, we've got to be able to back it up with the reason why. As opposed to, well, that's just the way it is. No, I, I look at it as historically. When I see yes, all evidently. Oh, yeah, there's, you, can't, you can't deny that God did something, whether you want to call it miraculous or special or unique, in, in 48, bringing the mass. Yeah. In 2005, when... Yeah. Basically, the Gaza Strip. Yeah, and, 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 please, like, this is not, this is, I'm not saying that we shouldn't support Israel. I'm saying right. we should. I know. They are allies. They are friends. They have every right to defend themselves. What happened in Gaza is evil and terrible. They have every right to go in and do what they need to do. And we need to help them because they are, if not, then the whole Middle East is going to be a powder keg of terrorism and whack. And so we need to, don't hear me say we shouldn't support. Yeah. Or just cast off the... I mean, I'm not, I'm not that kind of... Let's just forget about the... I think I've got myself in trouble. <laughs> There's flames coming on Facebook Live. Oh, I see the comments coming right now. You believe what? No, I can't see the comments. <laughs> any, any other clarifications or things maybe... Maybe push back or maybe you disagree. It's okay. This is kind of... We're all kind of working through this right now because it's so fresh and new. What can we all agree upon? Here's the one thing we can all agree upon. Jesus, please come back soon. <laughs> Maybe some of you want to, like, want to wait. But, um, that's, that's, I think that's where... And that everybody needs the gospel, regardless of whether they're Jew or Gentile. What does Romans 1.16 say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe to the Jew first 
and then to the Gentile. All right, I told you guys that Daniel, the second half of Daniel is going to be, what did I call a swampy mess? <laughs> Difficult stuff. Any other final questions? We just have like maybe a couple minutes left. All right, your head's about to explode with too much math tonight. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to, to gather. Lord, I know there's a lot of difficult stuff here. There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of just different things that may confuse us. And Lord, I don't, I don't want us to be confused. I want us to go home tonight praising you for your cross, Jesus, what you accomplished, the fact that every single person needs to hear the gospel so as to repent and believe. Lord, we do pray for the state of Israel. And we pray for all the the atrocities that have gone on, Lord, the people that are still being held captive in Gaza, Lord, just the whole situation. We pray for wisdom. Lord, we do pray for Jewish people to come to know their Messiah, Lord. We do. We pray for Stephen Atkinson and um, our ministry to Christian Witness to Israel and all the, the ministries that are being done in the nation of Israel right now to get the gospel across, Lord. We just pray that you would lift the, the blindness over the eyes of the Jewish people, that they would come to see Jesus as their Messiah and they would trust in him. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.